Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. Today, creeps, our tale has no good guys and no bad guys. Today, we have the bad guys and the worst guys. And instead of being victims of one another, the victims and perpetrators of this true crime tale are all victims of their own actions, as well as the actions of others. It isn't as confusing as it sounds, as you're about to find out. This true crime tale has lived on in infamy in the storied history of Los Angeles. There is a street called Wonderland Avenue in the Laurel Canyon section of Los Angeles, California. The houses on Wonderland Avenue are nestled in the oasis-like shadows of the canyon walls. They're packed tightly together in what can be described as a rather upscale neighborhood, sitting close to Hollywood in proximity, but feeling worlds apart as the desert-like hilltops cast long shadows as the Californian sun passes above. This area of LA was home to the base camp of the modest drug operation of the Wonderland Gang, who rented a townhouse at 8763 Wonderland Avenue in Laurel Canyon. Their leader, a Vietnam veteran named Ronald Lee Lanias. The second in command was Billy Deverell. There was also Deverell's girlfriend, Joy Miller, who was the leaseholder of the townhouse. There was also David Lind, Barbara Richardson, and Tracy McCourt residing at 8763 Wonderland Avenue. Ronald Lanius, born in Sacramento, California in 1944, found himself fighting in the Vietnam War in the late 60s. Ronald's military career went south when he was involved in the drug trafficking trade, but he wasn't dishonorably discharged until he was eventually caught, smuggling heroin back into the U.S. by stashing his goods on the bodies of deceased U.S. soldiers. When Ronald found himself dishonorably discharged and disenfranchised by the armed forces, he moved back to Sacramento and quickly found his way in one form or another in 27 separate homicide investigations throughout the early 1970s. And Ronald almost found himself in jail, which would have prematurely ended the gruesome events to come when in 1971 he was charged in the murder of a police informant a year before in 1970. But through some divine intervention, the key witness was murdered in a completely unrelated shootout, allowing Ronald to avoid a near-certain life sentence. Ronald's close call with the law and consequence didn't deter him from his path, though. Over the next few years, Ronald found himself stepping through a revolving door in and out of jail for smaller, pettier crimes, including a conviction for smuggling drugs across the U.S.-Mexico border. But this didn't phase the future leader of the Wonderland gang. No, in fact, Ronald Lanius seemed to have a superhuman indifference and ability to manage stress. David Lind, another member of the Wonderland gang, once said that Ronald's pulse never went above 70 beats per minute, even if a gun were to be pointed at his temple, or if he found his heels at the edge of a cliff. 
and the police claimed he was the coldest, most calculated person they'd ever encountered. But despite his near-psychotic lack of reactions, Ronald got married to a woman named Suzanne Murphy, who was another of the Wonderline gang members. In the late 1970s, at the height of the L.A. drug culture, five criminals banded together in Laurel Canyon, Los Angeles. Ronald Lanias, Billy Deverell, Joy Miller, David Lind, and Tracy McCourt. They saw the endless wealth coming out of the cocaine trade and decided if others were profiting, why not them? Together, they assembled their home base at 8763 Wonderland Avenue and began being known as the Wonderland Gang. A couple years passed, getting closer and closer to the 1980s, as the Wonderland Gang's drug operation brought in more and more money. And with the frequent visits to the drug party house of close associates Susan Murphy and Barbara Richardson, the shameful seven had assembled for action. Before the decade of the 1980s arrived, though, the Wonderland Gang found their first famous and most infamous customer in a former porn star, John Holmes. When the gang had met him, he was thousands of dollars in debt, though, a shadow of his former self and his former success, selling his belongings and spending all of his money on drugs, which he had previously purchased from Eddie Nash, the epitome of drug lords in L.A. As the heat waves of the 1981 summer arrived, the Wonderland gang started to realize the potential of their relationship with John Holmes, their client, and his connection to the looming lord of L.A. crime, Eddie Nash. Everyone wants to belong. It doesn't matter if you were a heroin addict like John Holmes. Everyone wants to belong. And up until this point, John Holmes was a leech, taking what handouts he could, crashing on the couch, tagging along when he wasn't wanted, and even stealing. In return, the Wonderland gang watched on in amusement as his social standing in the L.A. scene crumbled around him and used him as an errand boy for smaller or riskier tasks they just didn't want to do. So when John Holmes and the Wonderland gang started discussing his dissolving relationship with Eddie Nash, John and the gang all agreed they should act on a relationship that would soon be gone either way and John and the gang quickly organized a heist to take place at Eddie Nash's treasure chest mansion, which contained, among other things, a mountain of cocaine, heroin, and cash. The sun rose in the early morning of June 28, 1981, not yet casting its heat on the roofs of the Laurel Canyon homes. A light, crisp touch lingered in the air from the breeze that came off the Pacific Ocean crashing against the beaches of Santa Monica nearby. John Holmes left the Wonderland Avenue townhouse and made his way to Eddie Nash's mansion. When John Holmes arrived at the home, he tried to act as if it were any normal day, ordered his usual crack cocaine, and while in the home, made note of noticeable points. Valuables, exits, and entries... And while no one was looking, John Holmes unlocked the patio doors before leaving the mansion, feeling the anxiety of covert operations lifting off his shoulders as he exited the doors. By the time John Holmes arrived back at the Wonderland Avenue townhouse, it was later in the evening, excited to tell the Wonderland gang members he'd successfully opened the door for the heist. But as he came through the doors of the home, laughing and excited, ready to be congratulated, he found 
the rest of the Wonderland gang high on heroin instead of getting ready for a heist that was to take place that night. So John Holmes had to wait as everyone came down off of heroin before drawing a map of the mansion for the crew and rescheduling for the next day. Late morning arrived early for an anxious John Holmes on June 29, 1981, the day after having left the patio door unlocked, and he had felt paranoia worm its tentacles into his mind throughout the night. John felt as if too much time had passed. What if they noticed the door was unlocked? What if they locked it again? What if they knew what was about to happen and were already lurking the dark alleys of Hollywood waiting for John or perhaps Eddie Nash's henchmen were outside waiting for him? John Holmes swallowed his paranoia and decided to go back to the mansion to solidify that the patio doors remained unlocked and to judge whether or not Eddie Nash had clued in. When he got there though, Eddie Nash had no idea and the doors remained unlocked. John Holmes returned, and it was time for the members of the Wonderland gang to do their part. Members Billy, David, and Tracy, along with their fearless leader, Ronald Lanias, got into a stolen car and made their way to Studio City, where Eddie Nash's mansion was, and prepared for the hit. Tracy McCourt was the getaway driver, and stayed put in the stolen Ford Granada, serving also as a lookout man while Ron, Billy, and David put on their masks and entered the unlocked doors, not quietly, but bursting through with guns, identifying themselves as law enforcement officers. Gregory Diles didn't see law enforcement officers, though. He saw three masked robbers entering the home, and the 300-pound man approached them in an attempt to protect his employer, Eddie Nash, as well as his property, but was quickly subdued and handcuffed in a scuffle that caused one of the handguns to misfire, striking Gregory Diles, Eddie Nash's bodyguard, with a bullet in the back. The noise of the gunshot, though, echoed through the grand halls of the home, waking Eddie Nash in the other room, who entered to find his bodyguard, handcuffed and shot, and his valuables being pilfered by three masked men. Eddie Nash felt the cold sweat of dread drip down his back as he quickly begged for mercy, Seeing the situation for what it was, he dropped to his knees and raised his hands to the three robbers, dropping his head as tears of fear welled up in the corners of his eyes and begged to be spared. The men grabbed him and dragged him over to the safe, demanding he open it up for the men to take the valuables inside, which he did. And then Rob, David, and Tracy, the three masked members of the Wonderland gang, left hauling away what would later be valued at over $1 million worth of drugs, cash, and antique weapons. By the afternoon of June 29, 1981, the members of the Wonderland gang had returned to their home at 8763 Wonderland Avenue to sort out their heist treasure and divvy it up amongst themselves. The bags were dumped on the tables, as I'm sure the men congratulated themselves and sorted them into corresponding piles like children after trick-or-treating. But as the men fully weighed the value of what they had taken, greed seeped into their hearts, and Ron, David, and Billy decided it appropriate to shortchange John Holmes and Tracy McCourt, who had served in supporting roles in the heist. Tracy and John were infuriated, embarrassed and dejected, but nevertheless knew the situation was settled before they even had a chance to argue. 
Ronald, their leader, had spoken, so Tracy took his share, and John Holmes took some of the stolen jewelry and left the townhouse muttering under his breath. But the Wonderland gang had made a mistake. A classic rookie amateur, if you've ever seen a crime movie, you know not to do this sort of mistake. They'd left a loose end, and a gigantic one at that. A crime lord of LA-sized error, in fact. They had let Eddie Nash live, and it took no longer than the time the men spent running with their newfound wealth out of his mansion for Eddie Nash to swear revenge. And that's what he did. Eddie Nash quickly set to finding the culprits and perpetrators of the theft, sending his goons out in a network of heavy-handed spies who asked questions, and when they felt it necessary, got physical with others going about their day on the street and acquaintances who might have been the cause of Eddie's displeasure and perhaps by divine intervention, or a purely serendipitous moment, one of Eddie's henchmen spotted out of the millions of people who lived in LA at the time, none other than John Holmes sporting a notable ring, a ring that in fact belonged to Eddie Nash. If John Holmes and the rest of the Wonderland gang were perhaps a non-profit organization, instead of a drug ring, this is the moment where the story turns. Where I'd start to see the impending danger and doom, and where I'd let out an exaggerated and exasperated sigh. But this isn't a movie, or a book, and the Wonderland gang certainly weren't innocents. There was choice involved. They chose to live in this dark and dangerous world of drugs and crime. But all the same... Did they deserve what was about to happen to them? Absolutely not. And if they knew what was coming, they would have left Los Angeles and never looked back. Under orders from Eddie Nash, his henchmen took hold of John Holmes, dragging him back to the last place in the world John hoped to be that day, Eddie's mansion. John was confined, trapped, threatened, beaten, and brutally interrogated until he let slip the names of those who had shot Eddie's bodyguard. Those who were responsible for the fear and degrading begging Eddie Nash performed for his life, and most importantly to him, those responsible for stealing his drugs and money. Oddly enough, the witness to these private moments inside Eddie's mansion was a man named Scott Thorson, one of Liberace's former lovers who looked on in disgust and pity as John Holmes was beat bloody. Now, from this moment until roughly 3 a.m. on July 1st, no one knows the story, and anyone who'd be able to enlighten us is long since dead. But at 3 a.m. that morning, in Laurel Canyon, on Wonderland Avenue, the mayhem began. An unknown number of unidentified men entered 8763 Wonderland Avenue. The home was deathly silent, the sun hadn't yet risen, and the rooms were cloaked in an inky blanket of darkness. The unidentified men lurked through the home, seeking out their prey and targeting members of the Wonderland gang one by one. The hit squad came across Barbara Richardson first, making her out in the darkness of the downstairs living room. With the straightened steel pipes in their hands, they began bludgeoning her with wet, muted metallic thuds. Satisfied with their cruel handiwork, the men made their way through the downstairs of the townhome, down the hallway and into the rear bedroom, where they found Ronald Lanias, the leader of the Wonderland gang, 
In that moment, in the dark, it no longer mattered what he did, or rather didn't fear. Ronald went the same as Barbara, silently and brutally dying at the hands of the unidentified men. Beside Ronald was his wife, Susan, who was showed no mercy, beaten brutally with the steel pipes like the others, completely uninvolved in the heist itself, but guilty by association all the same. Susan lived, though, but she suffered traumatic brain injuries and a severed finger. The third and fourth hits were Joy Miller and Billy Deverell in the upstairs bedrooms. Joy slain in her bed while Billy sat in a chair in the corner of the room. For an hour between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. that morning, as the Wonderland gang was systematically and brutally slain with metal pipes, neighbors reported hearing a large amount of commotion coming from the home. The noise would have echoed off the tight canyon walls, but everyone thought they were just having another rough party and ignored the noise, as not more than a few yards behind walls, people were being murdered. Despite the amount of time the hit squad remained in the house, completing their clandestine brutal murder spree, no usable evidence was able to be retrieved from the scene, except for one, a handprint belonging to John Holmes on the headboard of Ronald Lanias's bed. But because John often visited the house, there was no way to know if he was in fact leaning over Ronald supporting himself by placing a hand on the headboard that night, or had merely touched it days before. This was the era before DNA and with no usable or at least visible evidence at the scene, investigators were at a complete loss of where to start. Their first actionable item on the agenda though included finding the remaining members of the Wonderland gang, who in their eyes at the time were the most likely suspects to have killed the others. David Lind, one of Ronald's closest friends in the gang after meeting him years before in prison, was one of the first to be taken into custody. But as David Lynn told police, he was in San Fernando Valley, spending a night in a motel with a prostitute. David then began to divulge to police he had been nowhere near the area of Laurel Canyon, instead selling drugs in a small, unconnected deal unknown to the other members of the gang. Police were quick to see the opportunity in this admission, using it to coax more confessions from David, who confessed to investigators that the members of the Wonderland gang, who had been murdered brutally, were all involved in a massive theft at Eddie Nash's mansion only two days before their deaths, with the aid of John Holmes, everyone's favorite fallen from grace, former celebrity porn star of Los Angeles County. This didn't tell police who had murdered Ronald and the other members though, but it pointed them in a direction. Eddie Nash and John Holmes. Now, without a doubt, myself and all of you creeps listening are thinking the same thing. Our overwhelmingly popular theory and the overwhelmingly popular theory at the time were much the same. Of course, Eddie Nash did it. If you rob and threaten a mentally unstable, brutal drug kingpin and then let him live, you're gonna have a bad time. Years after the events that unfolded on Wonderland Avenue, Scott Thorson, the man who had witnessed the interrogation of John Holmes and the former lover of Liberace, would write that he in fact was a witness to Eddie Nash ordering the retaliation against the Wonderland gang. 
To support this theory, Los Angeles detectives working the case at the time, Tom Lang and Robert Souza, found a million dollars of cocaine in Nash's possession, as well as trophies taken from the Wonderland residence and its slain members a week after the murders. Despite the common sense connections that could be made by a choir boy, let alone hardened true crime creeps like ourselves or seasoned law enforcement professionals like the LAPD, the LAPD's first arrest in connections to the murder at the Laurel Canyon home was none other than John Holmes and no one else in March 1982. The arrest was from the single handprint left on the headboard of Ronald Linias' bed. Surprisingly, in court though, the prosecution argued that Holmes couldn't have been a lone wolf, instead acting as the gatekeeper to Wonderland, the man with the keys to the doors. But on June 26, 1982, despite his more than likely cooperation and facilitation of the murders, John Holmes was acquitted for each count of murder. Now, John might have been one of the luckiest down-and-out porn stars on the planet in the trial levied against him by the state of California, because unlike an overwhelming majority of defendants appointed public defenders, John Holmes' two court-appointed lawyers actually managed to argue that John was in fact a victim and scared for his life, or at least argued it successfully enough to convince the jury. But John wasn't the only person to be put to trial for these horrific murders. In 1990, Eddie Nash, nine years after the murders, was charged with conspiracy and planning the murders along with his bodyguard, who had been shot in the robbery of his mansion, Gregory Diles. The prosecution brought Liberace's former lover to the stand to testify against Eddie Nash and Gregory Diles, and despite public opinion that it seemed like this testimony was enough to push Eddie and his defense into a corner, when it came down to the jury's decision, it ended in a hung jury of 11 votes guilty and one vote not guilty. The one holdout, though, being a woman who would later come forward and confess that Eddie Nash had bribed her $50,000 in order to do so. In 2001, a task force then once again arrested Nash under the Racketeering Act for Drug Trafficking, Money Laundering, Murder, and a Bribery of a Jury Member 11 years previously. But during the arraignment in September of 2001, Eddie Nash agreed to a plea deal, pleading guilty to bribery and money laundering, but never admitting any wrongdoing in the deaths of the Wonderland gang. Eddie Nash did admit to authorities that he had ordered men to 8763 Wonderland Avenue to retrieve his misplaced belongings, and perhaps maybe there was an opportunity for violence, but that he had no knowledge of this. Eddie Nash is now dead, so is Gregory Diles, and John Holmes, so the absolutely 100% undeniable truth might never be known. But perhaps it wasn't Eddie Nash at all, perhaps Tracy McCourt, who had been bullied and belittled by the members of the gang, and having been cut short on the Eddie Nash robbery finally had enough and snapped. Or maybe it could have been David Lind without whom the police would have never had any knowledge to point their gaze in the direction of Eddie Nash in the first place. Perhaps with all the Wonderland gang members gone, David Lind could inherit their mini-drug empire, as well as get away with his share of the robbery. Perhaps police knew David Lind was guilty, but saw the opportunity to bag a much larger fish and use David Lind in the future. 
It was rumored, after all, strongly rumored, in fact, that after the Wonderland murders, David Lynn operated as a police informant for years with the LAPD. Most of those involved were either murdered or have since passed away. Perhaps the truth will never be known. We can draw our own conclusions, but there is a certainty and concrete resolution, isn't there, creeps? Well, not today, unfortunately, as the Wonderland murders remain, and are likely to remain, technically unsolved. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 